Open your Bibles to Psalm 130. I, uh, as I said, the, the, the sermon text for today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. But before we get into the passage, I, I want us to read Psalm 130 because I think it, it's applicable to where we're kind of going today. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Listen to the Lord in the Psalms. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. And listen to this in verse 8. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, this is a pretty complicated passage and a subject, and I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. Uh, maybe slow down if I need to slow down a little bit, um, but I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters, and even the children, the ability to, to hear this, this, this kind of complex uh, sermon today, um, that we would be blessed and encouraged by it, that we'd be better stewards and better understandings of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And the reason I've taken time to read this psalm is because I want you to see for yourself um, that while it is certainly true, as we'll see it in today's sermon, that, that the people of Israel often find themselves crying out to the Lord to deliver them from political, social, economic, um, ecological, or even militaristic circumstances, what they longed for the most and what they knew that they needed the most was for the Lord to act on their behalf to deliver them from something far more sinister, far more dangerous, something far more consequential. What they really needed the most was for the Lord to deliver them from themselves, from their sin, and from the wrath of a holy God. What they really needed the most is what we saw in Psalm 8, is the full redemption that only the Lord himself can provide. All right? So while they had all these life circumstances that they wanted to be delivered from, they knew that they ultimately needed to be delivered from their sin. Now, in our Advent reading that, that, uh, that um, was read earlier, Matthew tells us about how, how this angel of the Lord came to, to, to Joseph. And he came to Joseph to comfort him and to tell him that, listen, um, Yes, Mary's pregnant, but, but she has not been unfaithful to you. Uh, the child that she has conceived is from the Holy Spirit. And, and then Matthew tells his readers, he says this, he's, he quotes this Old Testament prophecy, he says, all this took place to fulfill, in verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, I think it's probably a safe bet that most people, even if you're not a Christian, most people are familiar, have heard this, 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 
prophecy have heard this passage before. And part of the reason that you are familiar with it is because it's so often quoted this time of year. We see it in Christmas cards. We see it in yard signs now. We see it um, in Christmas plays and Christmas hymns and even on, on television shows. Now, I would like to think that many of you are familiar with it because um, this is the fifth time that I have preached on this passage in my tenure here at Redeemer. So I'd like to think that many of you remember what I told you before, right? But I know that's probably not the case. <laughs> I, I, it's a concept that's easily um, misunderstood and easily forgotten. So hopefully the repetition of it will, will bury it more deeply into your understanding and then you'll be able to repeat it yourself. Um, I haven't talked about this passage for, I think, four or five years, so I thought it was appropriate to address it. You know, I think another reason why most people have heard and remember and are familiar with this passage is that, truth is, there really is something about it that just sort of kind of stirs the soul. I mean, this is beautiful. But, but here's what I find so fascinating, is that while the words are beautiful... And while they do have this, this ability to sort of stir the soul, most people really aren't sure why. Most people aren't really sure what it really is all about or what it really means. In addition to that, um, here's something else I find fascinating. Is that while it does stir the soul, there, there are concepts here that actually uh, clash with American values of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-determination. There are concepts here that, that clash with how most people see and understand reality today. Let me try to explain. I think it's fair to say that most people today believe, and I'm talking about most people, not people in here, but most people in general in, in our culture today believe that the miracles in the Bible probably didn't actually happen the way that they're depicted in the scriptures. Most people today look at the miracles in the Bible and think that they're more fables or myths that contain truth, but they didn't actually happen. All right? It's also fair to say that most people today probably think of Christmas as a delightful, charming story that depicts God as always being on the side of the poor, the disadvantaged, and the oppressed. But ultimately, the events themselves, the miracle of the incarnation, the virgin birth, is dismissed by most people today as being purely sentimental. So here's what I want to do, all right? And if you're keeping notes, this would be a good thing. To, I want to accomplish two things today, so write these down. I want to make the argument that God himself really did come into the world in a miraculous way. And that he did so in order to crush our assumptions about reality. I want you to see that you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the supernatural. You can't be a Christian and not believe um, in miracles. You can't be a Christian and not believe in the incarnation that God himself took on flesh in order to atone for your sin. Right. So that's the first thing I want to achieve. The second thing I want to do is I want us, um, I want us to um, recognize that, that God really did come into the world, that he did come in a miraculous way, that he did take on flesh in order to crush our notion of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-determination. I want you to see that you cannot be a Christian and not believe, not just in God's ability, but in the absolute necessity, the essential necessity of God himself to intervene and to act on your behalf. All right? 
So those are the two things that I, that I want to try to accomplish today. And so let's begin by, by looking at this, this prophecy that Matthew quotes in verse 23. He says, Behold, virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now what happens most of the time with, with the Old Testament prophecy is like this, is you'll hear people take a whole list of Old Testament prophecies and they'll say, here, look, here's all these prophecies that were made in the Old Testament, and look, here's how they all came true in the New Testament. And it, it seems like a very simple process. Um, and, and here it says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and, and now it has happened in the New Testament, um, just, as it, just as the prophet said it, that it would. In other words, most people treat these, these prophecies as sort of like magical predictions of something that would happen in the far distant future. But that's not exactly how at least this prophecy works, okay? It's, it's not that simple, okay? <clears throat> you see, while this prophecy was spoken hundreds of years earlier, in fact, it was spoken 700 years earlier, first time, and it was spoken by a great prophet. It was spoken by Isaiah. And while it does find its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus, the prophecy itself actually had an original context apart from Jesus, right? Um, here, here's the original context. It was 700 years before the birth of Christ. In the city of Jerusalem, in the, the tribe of Judah, the people of God were about to be overrun. They were about to be attacked and over. Uh, over taken by two enemy nations, and, and they had no way of adequately defending themselves. In, in, in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah uh, chapter 7 verse 2, we're told that, that King Ahaz, the king of Judah, along with the, the people of Israel, uh, people of, of Judah, the people of Judah, it says that they shook like trees in the wind. In other words, the people were absolutely terrified. And instead of, of turning to the Lord to rescue them, Ahaz, the king of Judah, along with the people of Judah, they begin trying to solve the problem on their own. They begin scrambling and finagling and scheming and trying to make deals with other nations. Listen, we're going to get attacked by these two nations, but odds are they're going to come after you after us. So why don't you come and help us? And so they're trying to make deals with other nations to come and help them fight. And the last thing on their minds was turning to the Lord and looking to the Lord to deliver them. So the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to, to say to King Ahaz and to the people. He said, listen, I know things look really bad. And I know there is absolutely no way you can fix this situation on your own. But you need to be still. He says, you need to trust me. You don't have to be afraid. You need to know that I am with you. <clears throat> But Ahaz either didn't or he just couldn't believe that the Lord would actually save him and save the people. So in, in verse 10, the Lord sends Isaiah back to King Ahaz a second time. And said in, in chapter 7, verse 11, he says, listen, ask the Lord for a sign. Ask the Lord for any sign you want. Make, make the sign as, as hard and difficult as you can think of. Because the Lord wants to assure you. But Ahaz rejects the offer. And he, said, he, he kind of piously says, well, I refuse to put the Lord to a test. Now, we're not really exactly sure why he did this. It's very possible that, that he just didn't believe that the Lord could deliver him. 
It's also possible that he didn't want to think of himself or he didn't want other people to think of him as some sort of religious nut. I think it's probably a third reason. I think Ahaz knew that if, if he did ask for a sign and the Lord gave him one and then he didn't trust the Lord and be still, then he'd be even more culpable, all right? So take your pick. Regardless of why, Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. And so Isaiah says to him, he says, since you refuse to choose a sign for yourself, the Lord's choosing one for you, all right? And look with me in chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in verse 16, it says, Before he's old enough to know that, before this child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, in other words, even while this child is a very small child, um, the two kingdoms that are preparing to attack you, they're going to be laid to waste. You don't need to worry about these attacking nations. But then he says in verse 17, he says, but after that, because you refuse to believe, the Lord will bring a time upon you that you and your people, unlike anything that you and your people have ever seen before, because you refuse to believe, the king of Assyria, a different nation, is actually going to come in and, and destroy you. And, and, and because you refuse to believe, people from distant nations are going to come and live in your land. In other words, because you refuse to believe, rather than being blessed, you're going to receive judgment. So let's stop back and let's talk about this prophetic sign, this, this virgin giving birth to a son. But I, I want us to look at it in its, in its original context. Right? Now, if you go back and you read the, the, the story of Isaiah in, in the book of Isaiah, and if you go back and you read Isaiah chapter 7, which is what we're looking at, if you read it in its original context you'll see that Isaiah wasn't sitting here thinking about Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. You're going to see that Isaiah wasn't trying to make some magical prediction that would take place 700 years in the future. Now, now God may have been doing that, but Isaiah at the time wasn't, I don't think, was thinking that, all right? Here's what's actually going on. If you read Isaiah 7 in its context, you read the preceding chapters and even the latter chapters, you'll see that Isaiah, his wife had died. All right? We see that in the earlier chapters of Isaiah. His wife had died and he is now engaged. Sorry, ladies, he's engaged to a younger woman. All right? And, and while this younger woman is not part of the conversation, it appears that she is standing off in the distance. And Isaiah points to her and he says to King Ahaz, he says, you see that young woman over there? You see that young virgin over there? She's going to be my bride. She's going to have a child. She is going to have a son. But he wasn't saying that she would conceive while she was still a virgin. No, the child, the son that Isaiah has in mind is his own child, is its own son. And what Isaiah was saying to King Ahaz was this. He said, listen, God is not going to allow these two nations to come in here and override and destroy and, and, and defeat your kingdom. He says, listen, you are not going to be killed. I'm not going to be killed. Our wives are not going to be taken off into captivity and given to other men. <laughs> and, and he says, here's the thing. When you see my son in a couple of years running around the streets of Jerusalem, he will be a living testimony. 
of what I am telling you right now. This little boy running around the streets of Jerusalem is going to be a living testimony of God's faithfulness, God's willingness, God's ability to intervene and to interact to save his people from the most difficult, dire, and impossible situations. He's going to be a testimony that God has indeed delivered us from these two enemy nations. He's going to be a witness that God was indeed with us. And what Isaiah is telling Ahaz was that this Emmanuel child would be a sign of redemption for those who trusted in God's ability to intervene and interact on their behalf, but he would also serve as a sign of judgment for those who refused to believe. Now, if you read on in Isaiah chapter 8, you will see the initial fulfillment of this prophecy. Because we're told in chapter 8, verse 3, that, that after a certain amount of time had passed, a, a year or two couple of years, we're told that Isaiah went to her. He went to his bride, and she conceived. And she did. She gave birth to a child. She gave birth to a son. And it says, and the, and the Lord told him to name the child Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> Now you may be saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't God say that this child was supposed to be called Emmanuel? Well, yes. But the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, was symbolic. It was never intended to be the child's actual name. It was that this child served as a testimony that God was with us, or God is with us. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz was an Emmanuel child. He was a reminder of God's faithfulness. He was a reminder of God's goodness, but uh, uh, that God was indeed with them. But he was also a reminder of God's judgment for those who failed to believe. As I said a few moments ago, just because Isaiah was not thinking 700 years into the future, it doesn't mean that God wasn't. Right? What Matthew wants his readers to understand in chapter 1 is that the, the woman and the child of Isaiah's day, Isaiah's wife and his son, were simply types or foreshadows of something and somebody greater than themselves. He wants his readers to see that while this prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, its greater fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment, is found 700 years later in the birth of Jesus. In our passage that, that we read earlier, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, Joseph, he finds out that his fiancée is pregnant. And he knows that this child is not his. I mean, his world is crashing down around him. It's being turned upside down. And, and like when Isaiah went to Ahaz, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph. And, and he delivers the exact same message. He said, listen, I know things look really bad. There's no way that you can fix this situation on your own. But you need to be still. You need to trust me. You don't have to be afraid. I want you to know and trust that I am with you. In verse 20 and 21, he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save, because he will save his people from their sins. Think back to Psalm 30, right? That we read earlier. You see, it's then that it's here that Matthew wants his readers to see, and he, it's here that he says, and he refers to this Old Testament prophecy. Look with me at 20, 22 and 23. He says, All of this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. So once again we have a child. We have a son. And once again the name Emmanuel was not his actual name. But rather it was symbolic. Okay. His name is Jesus. And just as Mahir Shalal Hashbaz was a sign of God's presence and ability to deliver those who trust him and, and, and a sign of God's judgment for those who refuse to believe in him. So Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's presence and willingness and ability to deliver those who believe. But he is also the ultimate sign of judgment against those who do not. Just as Mahir Shalal Hashbaz points to God's willingness to redeem and deliver and to save his people from two invading armies, this child, Jesus, the one born to Mary, he points to an even greater, an even greater redemption, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation from an even greater danger. This child, Jesus, points to the full redemption of God that was spoken of in Psalm 130. And remember the promise of Psalm 130. In verse 8, it says, He, or God Himself, would intervene and interact on behalf of His people. That He, that God Himself, would redeem Israel from all their sins and from the judgment of God. So that's how the prophecy works. I think it's fair to say that the vast majority in, in, in this room here believe in the miraculous. You believe in the incarnation. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe that the God has not only interacted and intervened, that God must interact and intervene on your behalf. That God has interacted within his creation through the giving of his only begotten son in order to, to win the greatest and most important battle of all. I believe that it's fair to say that the vast majority of you in this room believe that this child grew up and he lived a life of righteousness. And he grew up and he made atonement for your sin on the cross in order to save you from the judgment and the wrath of God. I think most of you in this room believe that. Um, if you're still struggling with that, if, if you're not quite sure how it all works, please come see me after the worship service. Let's spend some time. Call me. My, my phone number's on the back of the bulletin. Reach out to me. I would love to sit down and talk with you about it more. All right? But for now, I want to talk to those in this room who are believers. All right? And I want to ask you this question. If you're trusting the Lord with something as important as eternal things then why is it so hard for you to trust him with the temporal ones? 
I'm not a prophet. I, I, I don't know exactly what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what kind of battle you're faced with. I don't know if it's as bad as the potential destruction of Jerusalem and, and Judah. But here's something that I do know. I know that in some form or another, there is something going on in your life. That, that you are under some form of attack. There's something that is causing you like Ahaz and like Joseph, to feel overwhelmed, afraid, and powerless. Here's something else I know about you. Like Ahaz, your instinct is to begin scrambling and finagling and scheming. Your instinct is to begin trying to make deals, trying to solve your problem on your own. And and for most of you, it's not until you have exhausted all of your own resources. It, it, like, my assumption is that most of you, it's not until you've come to the end of yourself that you actually find yourself turning to the Lord. We sang a few minutes ago, Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me. I sought the Lord and he delivered me from every fear. A lot of us were lying. Sort of. But that's what that, that song declares. Again, I, I know I'm not a great prophet like Isaiah. And I'm certainly not an angel of the Lord. But I believe that God has sent me to you this morning to give you a message. I believe that the Lord has called me to stand up here and tell you something. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you find yourself in at this very moment, God has sent me this morning to tell you, listen, I know things look really bad. I know, you can't fix, you can't solve whatever it is that you're trying to fix, solve, or control. But it's okay to be still. You don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to wait until you've exhausted all your effort and all your resources before turning to me. In fact, you can turn to me first. It's okay to be still. And you can be absolutely sure that the Lord is indeed, if you are in Christ, you can be absolutely sure that the Lord is indeed with you. But I also want to say this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, if you do not wait, if you don't look to the Lord, you're never going to be able to stand. That's what this season of Advent is about. It's a reminder that there is a king who has come. He has made atonement for your sin. He has lived a life of righteousness to give that righteousness to you. He has come. He's, he, has, he has restored your relationship with the Lord if you're trusting in him. So while we look back to that, we also look forward to his coming. And this season gives us hope and a reminder that he is coming back again to make things right. Completely right. Amen?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we seek you. And over and over and over again, we have testimonies where you have delivered us. But yet when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we find it hard once again to trust and to believe, especially when the circumstances become so difficult. But Lord, may we be still, may we rest, may we be the kind of people who seek you and seek your deliverance, knowing that not only can, but you must intervene on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.